0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and african Americans. Our speaker is classmate and podcast group member, Peter Grilly. He will be talking about Japan and Hiroshima. August 6, 1945 was the day that the United States dropped the atomic bomb. Peter was one of the producers of a documentary titled Paper Lanterns. He tells the story of an atomic bomb survivor and his lifelong calling to tell the stories of the 12 American POWs, killed by the bombing of hiroshima i'm joined by eight of my harvard classmates
1: hello collins live in aiken south carolina harvard 63 20 years in the navy then working for hazardous and radioactive waste disposal now retired from all that spencer
2: hi uh, spencer calling from uh, signing in from florida uh, harvard 61 and uh, still on the quest for sustainable development and economic equality. Peter, the Boy. Here in New Hampshire, and uh, just started off by saying what an enjoyable experience the movie was such a, a wonderful character study of the gentleman in Japan. And in so many ways, a uh, great movie. I have a friend who's a a historian of of Asian art and lived in Japan a long time too, and I'm
3: going to uh, recommend it to her with pleasure. Mason, how are you? I'm good. I'm in uh, Freeport, Maine, uh, Harvard class of 62-3, if you know what that means. Uh, spent 33 years working for the Nature Conservancy doing land conservation. More recently, I've been doing uh, climate change work. At the moment, uh, I have a grandson who is in a traveling circus for teenagers and they've got the day off. So now I've got 25 of them in my swimming pool.
4: <laughs> and I, just circus. Came, I just
3: came back from buying $160 worth of pizza to try and keep them fed. <laughs> is this Circus Smurkus? Is that it? Yeah, Circus Smurkus. Oh, wow. That's good. A lot of fun. Yeah.
5: Doug. Oh, uh, Doug Shapiro. Uh, Peter Grilly and I were uh, very good friends in our freshman year at Harvard, uh, and then I, I took a year's leave of absence, and he took, a, 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 I think, even a, a longer extended leave of absence. We lost contact with each other for something like 55 years. And uh, finally, uh, we've sort of been reunited. And uh, so I'm very pleased that uh, we can share this experience with LNAH. Okay. Ronnie.
6: Thank you. Uh,
3: Ron Blau, class of 63. Worked most of my life in television and video. Now doing a lot of climate volunteering. Um, especially interested in hearing what Peter has to say, because I'm now working on a project for a museum, part of which has to do with um, a young girl in a Japanese internment camp in the United States.
6: Oh, really?
7: Wow. Wow.
6: Okay, great. Liz.
7: Hi, Um, I'm uh, also class of 63, and I'm a native of California, currently living in Tacoma Park near my uh, children and grandchildren. And when you were talking about 160 bucks, when I went offline for a moment there, I just paid 160 bucks to a plumber. So 160 bucks for lots of different things. So I'm very, very excited to be here. Thank you. I'll
1: so take
6: much. the pizza. <laughs>
7: <laughs> <laughs> all right,
1: all right,
3: all right. Nick. Nick Bancroft, uh, outside of Boston on an island in Buzzards Bay, class of 63, uh, you know, Peace Corps uh, Business School. Uh, uh, investments in Boston uh, on an island. I've picked up a very nice book that I'm thoroughly enjoying and recommend. Maybe some of you have oh. read it already. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Oh. That, that
0: looks thanks familiar. to
3: the author. Thanks to the yeah, author. A bunch of those
2: islands are mentioned there, right?
3: <laughs> they are. And I'm looking across <laughs> at New Bedford as we speak, although oh. it's kind of cloudy over there oh my god okay i have to ask you, nick what island is it uh Nushon island oh, yeah. part of the elizabeth islands right off to the right yeah,
2: okay. yeah sure. oh,
3: no. Oh, no. Oh, no. jeff yeah
0: hi uh jeff fox um like almost everybody else here born the year of pearl harbor and the declaration of war on japan so that uh, will so feel a. Uh, I, I, an obvious concern for you know the issues brought up by this film. love the movie, I mean it was it was, it was very moving, and I, I I really I hope a lot of Americans see it. And I'm, we're going to ask you how the reaction has been in Japan. I write fiction now and I live in Spain. Okay, Good Allen, how are you? I haven't seen you in a bit.
1: Oh, I've, <clears throat> I've been busy. Uh, I'm uh, also class of '63. I uh, am a, uh, an unsuccessfully attempted to retire lawyer.
4: Uh,
1: <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I, I spent a lot of my life either in or working on issues involving the Marshall Islands. I uh, lived there for six years. Uh, and the defining experience of the Marshalls was uh, administration by Japan from uh, the middle of uh, world war one years uh, until after uh, uh, world war ii uh, i thought the movie was utterly intriguing uh, and uh, i i thought it was wonderful to see someone uh, who made no bones about uh, his mastery of history uh, and just said straight away well i got all a's and i remembered everything." <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> that was terrific. Oh, all right, uh,
0: uh, John Woodford.
8: Well, you're here in Ann Arbor, and 63, uh, and I reminded me I'd seen a movie. I think it was called Children of Hiroshima. Maybe Peter knows about that. They could discuss the different. I'd like to hear about the different uh, Japanese movies about the subject. But yeah, very powerful movie. And I particularly liked showing the effect on the guy from Kentucky, who in the beginning was saying you know, this was abnormal behavior, yes. this uh, bonding that the Japanese did. And then he seemed to kind of be converted to another way of thinking without its being too mawkishly put in the movie, which it might have been, but it was just sort of happened. And so we saw him get transformed, sort of, during the movie. And it was quite remarkable. George Jones, again, yes. class of
2: 63, I'm here in Ann Arbor. John and I went for a motorcycle ride yesterday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Trying Very to right. find our way to a barbecue place, but they're only open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, so we were out of luck.
8: <laughs> oh. <laughs> gotta go back. All right.
4: And David, David Allen. Also class of 63 here at Concord, Mass., across a uh, sampler of a lifetime, uh, included uh, some years at MIT, part of a program, and then up to the Kennedy School, starting a program on the topic of telecoms policy, came to be, uh, shall we say, the American contact person for a group of Japanese who were visiting for a year each, it got to be quite a group. Of course, I got to Japan several times across there. Uh, It just wet my interest. Uh, Spencer called the video sublime. Uh, I have rarely, if ever seen, such quality in video making. Peter, I'm looking forward to hear a lot more about that. Also, grew up in the Midwest. Thank you. And therefore, the the family from Kentucky, also close to the heart. Yeah. Okay.
0: And
6: Peter, thank you so much for joining, for being here and uh, talking to us. Well, um, like many of you, I'm also class of 63, but um, as Doug Shapiro mentioned, I dropped out after two years and ended up coming back and graduating in 65. So I'm one of those people that has a slash in the middle of the 63, 65. Last weekend, August 6th was um, the 77th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. And then three days later, August 9th, was the 77th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Nagasaki. Um, And Four days from now, on August 15th, would be the 77th anniversary of Japan's collapse at the end of World War II, uh, when the Emperor Emperor Hirohito went on the radio to his country for the first time ever and announced that the Japanese would, (coughs) Japan had accepted the terms of unconditional surrender from the Allied forces and that the Japanese people would have to endure the unendurable. That's a phrase that um, remains in everyone's memory from that uh, August 15th surrender day. Um, So given that all of that, Kent and I thought that this would be an appropriate time perhaps to think about Hiroshima and to take a look at uh, the film that I made, that I helped make. (laughs) <laughs> several years ago called Paper Lanterns. I'm glad a number of you have seen it. I, I hope all of you uh, get a chance to see it at some point. Um, um, I've spent my life, I, I went to Japan when I was five years old as a kid during the occupation. I grew up during the occupation after the war, and I've basically spent my life ever since in doing one form of exchange between Japan and this country, mostly cultural exchanges um, through Japan societies and through many other um, uh, means. Um, But of all the work that I've done with Japan over the years, this particular project, the Paper Lanterns film project, is certainly one of the most important, I think, and one of the uh, most influential, perhaps, So I'm glad to have this opportunity to share it with you. Um, I look forward to your comments and questions, but before we get to that, I'd like to share with you a very brief uh, PowerPoint that I prepared just a couple of weeks ago for a uh, presentation in Hiroshima of, of the film. Um, I couldn't go of course, but the host asked me to, to, uh, joined the meeting in Hiroshima, it was the Hiroshima Toastmakers. And um, so I prepared this PowerPoint to give a certain amount of background on the making of the film. And let me just share it with you now. With this slide, I'm I'm starting really at the end of the Paper Lanterns project. This was the culmination of the film, uh, unlooked for, unexpected culmination. But on May 27, 2016, President uh, Barack Obama was the first American president to visit Hiroshima um, and gave an astounding speech there in the, in the Peace Park. Um, <clears throat> one of his most eloquent speeches of his long career of very eloquent speeches. Um, and after the speech, he met with the person who was the subject of. The paper lanterns film, um, uh, a Hiroshima bomb victim, who was eight years old at the time, Shigeaki Mori. And this picture was taken of their very brief uh, moment of encounter, when Mr. Mori, who said he had many, many things he wanted to say to the president, but couldn't get any of them out of his mouth, he burst into tears and Barack Obama with the incredible extraordinary uh, quality of empathy that he has uh, just reached out and embraced uh, this aged Mr. Maury and that picture <clears throat> immediately flashed around the world it was on the front page of every newspaper and the top news on every uh, tv news program um, the following day um, and it's become an iconic Symbol of uh, U.S. Japan um, reconciliation. Um, But going back to the subject of the film itself, um, if you've seen it, you know it was about several of the victims of the American bombing, American victims of the American bombing of Hiroshima on August 6th. Two of them in particular. the gentleman from Kentucky that some of you have mentioned uh, being moved by was Ralph Neal, and he was the great nephew of Ralph Neal, who was killed by the bomb, and also Norman Brissett. Um, the two of them <clears throat> were victim, victims of the bomb when it dropped on August 6 but survived and lived for another two weeks or so. They finally died on August 19th, 1945. Two of the most incredibly miserable weeks that any human being could endure, I think. And this was the grave, the two graves that were erected for them, for them just on the outskirts of Hiroshima on August 19th. Um, But the hero of the film really is Shigaki Mori, uh, this um, gentleman now 85, who was eight years old at the time of the bomb, grew up in Hiroshima watched the recovery of Hiroshima um, and has essentially pledged his life to creating a memorial to the 12 American servicemen prisoners of war who were killed uh, by the bomb. Um, <clears throat> he, um, as if you've seen the film, you know that he spent close to 40 years tracking down the families of, of the American soldiers and also um, creating a small memorial monument to them in Hiroshima because he realized that of the many, many monuments to uh, the dead, to the dead Japanese, Chinese, um, Yeah, in Hiroshima, he discovered that there was nothing at all uh, to commemorate the Americans who had also died there. So he created a small uh, memorial, Um, but his goals were chiefly to research the stories of the Americans, uh, to contact each of their families, which was a tremendous task, which I'll talk more about later and have each of the American victims, bomb victims um, registered at the Memorial Peace Museum in Hiroshima, which attempts to keep records of every single of the hundreds of thousands of victims of the bomb, but there were no uh, records at all of the Americans. So he collected the information about them and finally got them all registered at the uh, Peace Museum. Um, and also to make their story known around the world and to create a small memorial for them in Hiroshima. I had never known that Americans were killed by the bomb. It's not a subject that uh, appears in American history books, certainly. It's not a subject the American government wants to talk about because in a sense it's friendly fire. So simply the surprise to learn that Americans had died in the bomb grabbed my attention. So I started looking further into this subject and I made contact with the director, a guy by the name of Barry Frechette, who turns out lives near Lowell, which is just uh, about 20 minutes from where I live in Massachusetts. And I contacted him and uh, asked him to tell me more about the project and where he was, where he was with it. At that point in 2014, his Kickstarter project was trying to raise something like $22,000 to make this film in Japan. And I made a number of documentary films in my life and I knew that $22,000 wouldn't barely be enough to pay for the the film material, that he needed more. So um, I encouraged him to be a little bit more ambitious in his fundraising. And then he said, "Well, I can't raise more than twenty-two thousand dollars, but maybe you can help me." And so I did try to help him as best I could, and we ended up raising, um, I guess, the final budget was something like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and still Barry's paying a good deal of the cost of the film out of his own pocket. But in asking how he, why he was interested in this, and how he got started, it turned out that Barry was distantly related to a man who was one of the bomb victims closest friends in life. Um, So Barry had this sort of family relationship with Norman Brissett. Norman was someone that he'd always heard about as he was growing up in Lowell, but um, no one in the family really knew much about how uh, Norman had died. He was uh, in the Navy, Uh, He joined the Navy at the age of 17, 1943. And here he is with his best friend, Eddie Chandonet, who was Barry's Frechette's relative. Um, Here is uh, Eddie. At the time we filmed him in the film, he was one of the last people to see Norman before Norman was shot down near Hiroshima. Um, as a Navy flyer. So Barry had this sort of distant family connection and that seemed very interesting to me. I wanted to learn more. Um, and I kept pressing him, what really motivated him to make this film? Um, and he said that several years earlier, he, in 2012, he'd seen a newspaper clipping showing a Japanese gentleman And Barry at this point really knew nothing about Japan and very little about Hiroshima and the bomb, but he saw this picture of Mr. Mori meeting with Clifton Truman Daniel in Hiroshima in 2012 and Barry started thinking, being the bright um, young fellow that he is, he started wondering what would a Japanese bomb victim now in his 80s and clifton truman daniel who's the grandson of the man who okayed the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, what would they be talking about they they met clearly they were having a cordial relationship but what was going on in their minds and what were they talking about so that's what really launched barry on making this film the coming together of the descendant of harry truman and a young boy who had suffered as, as a young boy in the bombing of
1: his um,
6: And then there's another, quote, member of our team. We call her an honorary team member because she really wasn't involved in the making of the film. But Caroline Kennedy, who was then ambassador to Japan, American ambassador to Japan, got word of this film being made and became intensely interested in it and carried the story to others in Washington. And uh, it's really Caroline's dedication to this film that resulted eventually in in President Obama's going to Japan as the first American president uh, to visit Hiroshima. Now, I don't know if Obama ever actually saw the film. I hope he did. Uh, But I know that she sent copies of the film, even before it was finished, to various colleagues of hers in the State Department and at the White House. So um, the film began to take on an identity much bigger than its original purpose, largely through Caroline Kennedy's help. Um, The actual film work, filming work was done in Hiroshima in 2015 and 2016. And the fact that this group of Americans were making a film about the bomb in Hiroshima became quite a cause celebre in itself in Japan. And everywhere the film team went, they were followed by Japanese TV newscasters and film uh, people who were filming the filming of Mm. Paperland. So that became something of an interesting subject in itself. <clears throat> all the material was collected, brought back to Boston in the winter of 2015-2016 to be edited, and the premiere of the film, first screening, was in February in, of 2016. I tell you, Peter, um, I was completely swept away by the passion of this very small group of young kids um, who were in a sense, learning the history of World War II in the process of making these films. They didn't know much about it um, before they started working on this. And the, not only the passion and commitment, but also the artistry that they brought to it. Um, you, you mentioned, I think, that it seemed very Japanese to you. Um, And it did to me too when I first started viewing some of the footage that they were bringing back. And when I've shown the film in Japan, many Japanese people um, who don't know anything about the background of how it was made say, ask me, well, which Japanese cameraman did you use? Which which, uh, Japanese team did you work with in making this? And everybody in Japan is amazed that it was made by, a group of young Americans, because it does have a very Japanese quality to it. But my kind of footnote to that story is um, I'm a passionate fan of Japanese films. And one of my favorite directors is Yasujiro Ozu. Some of you may have seen some of his films, their masterpieces. Tokyo Story, for example, is one of the great masterpieces of world cinema. And he has a very delicate touch in his camera work of Japanese families in action. So when I first saw Max Esposito's first footage that came back from Japan, I said, uh, Max, you must be a big fan of Ozu. You have this wonderful Ozu quality about your your camera work. And he sort of said, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I went on and on in my enthusiasm. And he finally said, Peter, what is Ozu? (laughs)
4: <laughs>
6: you know, it wasn't that he was imitating anyone, it was coming <laughs> purely from him. Right, right. And that, that encounter of American filmmakers, Japanese subject, Japanese style, uh, I found absolutely fascinating and wonderful.
3: Uh-huh.
6: Uh, Nick, did you have your hand up? Nick.
3: Nick. Um, yes. I've... Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Hello? You can hear me?
4: Yes. Yep.
3: Good. Um, uh, Peter, terrific, uh, wonderful movie, viscerally uh, like a sledgehammer. Um, I thought another quote you could add to your PowerPoint might have been when Obama said, memory fuels our moral imagination.
7: Mm.
3: And I thought that was beautifully put, as only perhaps President Obama could have put it. Exactly. My mind quickly went, though, <clears throat> to an understanding an understanding of history mm-hmm. is most important, as Mr. Morey obviously agrees. And uh, my mind then went to Ruth Benedict. And mm. I wonder if you perhaps in some way uh, thought more about the chrysanthemum and the sword and Ruth Benedict's interaction with MacArthur and Truman and history?
6: (laughs) That's a long complicated (laughs) question. Uh, To be totally direct. Short answer
3: is fine.
6: (laughs) (laughs) To be completely direct about it, I wasn't thinking about Ruth Benedict at all, although For anyone who's studied Japan and studied Japanese history, she's a major presence and and she's always sort of hovering uh, above us, Um, even though many sociologists these days have completely discounted her theories um, Uh of Japanese society. But anyway, um, her book, Chrysanthemum and the Sword, uh, has made a tremendous impact and it certainly um, Douglas MacArthur was aware of her work. I don't know if he ever read the book itself, but he was aware of, of her work. And it may have colored his thinking about Japan to some degree, but much more influential, I think, were people like like um, Harvard's Edwin Reichauer, who yes. was in the War Department, who was like me, had grown up in Japan. He's one of the idols of my personal life. We went to the same school in Tokyo. Um, who was much more influential. Reichauer as well as other people, some of them at Harvard actually were influential in the war um, about things, major questions like should the emperor be be um, considered a war criminal should he be persecuted as a war criminal should he be preserved as emperor should Kyoto be bombed Kyoto great cultural capital so um Ruth Benedict may have had an influence but I think there were others who had more of a direct impact okay John
8: hi um it's a wonderful film I just wondered what did Caroline Kennedy say were the uh factors in Obama's? decision to go there and make the speech what was going on in the background what kind of political or other
1: yeah yeah
6: that again is a big is a big issue um obama was going to japan anyway uh for a uh, g20 i think it was a g20 conference which took place a day before he went uh Um, to Hiroshima. So he wasn't going to Japan to go to Hiroshima. He was going for economic reasons and visiting, you know, America's greatest um, economic partner in in the world, uh, along with economic leaders and heads of state of many other countries. Um, But she, um, as well as many other people in the State Department, weighed in with the White House uh, to persuade him to go to Hiroshima, since he was going anyway to Japan. Uh, and I think in her mind, she had been to Hiroshima several times as ambassador, and she knew the uh, she knew the significance of that in the Japanese mentality, but also in international mentality of making an official visit to Hiroshima. She had been deeply, deeply impressed by the the psychological impact of visiting the the Peace Museum in Hiroshima, which offers very graphic, graphic um, descriptions of what the bombing was like. um, And what the aftermath of the bombing was like. So she and others felt that uh, Uh, President Obama, it was high time that an American president go to Hiroshima, not to apologize, not to talk about the war in sort of living terms anymore, but recognizing that the hostilities of Japan and America 70 years earlier were a thing of the past and had to be transcended, and that the significance of Hiroshima in the future of the nuclear future of the world Uh, was a point that needed to be made, Um, so I think that was some of her thinking that went into it, and of course there were other people in the State Department who echoed her, who agreed with her, Um, and there were also people who sharply disagreed. Okay,
2: George, George Jones. So Peter, what do Japanese young people learn today about World War II, and what what if you can tell us what do the Japanese people think today about the dropping of the atomic bomb bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki?
6: Well, to answer the first question about what do Japanese kids learn in school, they learn virtually nothing. Um, Japanese history classes never. Get up beyond the, the reign of the Emperor Meiji, which was 19th century, early 20th century. Very, very rarely do classes come anywhere near World, World War II. Um, so they learn very, very little. And it was a period of Japanese history that most uh, Japanese who do know know the history want to forget and want to put behind them. They, you know, it's not anything they want to talk about. Um, But it's important that they do remember. I mean, uh, uh, partly I think as a result of of never learning anything about it, um, the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki have contributed to what people have called the sense of victimization of Japan uh, or the weaponization of Japan's victimhood. Uh, Japan is the only country that's been subjected to nuclear destruction. And for many Japanese, they use that almost as a weapon. You know, no one else in the world knows what we know um, about nuclear. And they use it to good purpose as well as negative purposes. The good purposes are to try to uh, proclaim peace wherever they can to lobby wherever they can against nuclear uh, warfare and nuclear uh, weapons. Um, And in a sense, they have the authority to do that, being the only nation in in the world. But um, sadly, I think most young Japanese don't know this history and it's not anything that their elders want to talk about. and to, to get back to the basic point, it was, I think it was George Santayana and other philosophers who've said that those who don't know history are, are doomed to repeat it. Um, and I think that thinking, that attitude is much of the motivation behind, behind Mr. Morey. It, he keeps saying that the most important audience for his work and he loved the fact that our film is now being shown in schools the most important audience is young people because um, they're the ones who are going to carry the future and they're the ones who are going to either ensure that we use nuclear weapons or that we forbid nuclear uh, nuclear warfare Um, so it's the young people who are who are the future Um, and he is he's thrilled actually now that several new japanese textbooks um, textbooks in international affairs textbooks in japan's uh, japanese society um, have taken his story and uh, the whole paper lantern story and featured it now they feature it because he's the one Japanese person who was embraced by President Obama and that picture is there in all the new textbooks, but the fact that his story is now becoming known to Japanese young young people is the most powerful um,
5: thing for him. Doug. Yeah, uh, Peter throughout all of this. uh... I continue to be totally amazed that uh, Mr. Mori would dedicate basically his entire adult life to pursuing this question of the identity of 10 Americans. If you think about Japanese history a little bit, uh, the Japanese military probably killed, who knows, a million people throughout Southeast Asia and particularly northern China. I have no idea as to how many Japanese soldiers were killed uh, during the Second World War, we know there were something like 100,000 Japanese people killed at Hiroshima and close to that in Nagasaki. Why would a Japanese man devote his entire life to the question of the identity and family background of 10 Americans when there were all of these Japanese people who had died uh, related to military affairs and wars and so forth and so on. It's it just, I can't quite fathom that.
6: It It is pretty staggering, isn't it? Um, earlier, I'm, I used the word selfless about Mr. Moore, and he certainly is very, very selfless. But he also has um, a kind of abiding sense of justice of human, maybe primitive, but very uh, fundamental sense of human justice. And as he was growing up in Hiroshima, um, when he did hear that Americans had been killed there, he kept looking around for some kind of monument. There were monuments from Czechoslovakia, there were monuments from African countries, there were monuments from almost every country in the world. But nothing had mentioned the fact that Americans were killed there. And I think simply as a matter of sort of writing a wrong or writing an injustice, that was one of his motivations. The rest of your question is just too big and too you <laughs> to really, really understand. Um, he's an incredible man. Um, um, and... I think part of the background of this is I should mention that Hiroshima, which during the war and before the war was an enormous military center um, and militarism and the war effort were part of every Hiroshima uh, citizen's life, daily life. It was a friend of mine recently reminded me that uh, Hitler would send um, delegations of Hitler-Jugend young German, um, young Nazis or proto-Nazis to Japan, but especially to go to Hiroshima because Hiroshima was such a military center that that Hitler knew that the hitler Jugend would be appreciated in Hiroshima under the Axis. Well, that identity of Hiroshima after the bomb, after the war has been totally turned on its head. Uh, Hiroshima now stands for peace it's one overriding sense of identity. If you can describe a a city with a single sense of identity is peace Is a center of peace. Everywhere you turn there's peace, peace street, peace avenue, peace museum, peace coffee shop. It's all dedicated toward peace. And some may look at that as the sort of weaponization of, of, Hiroshima's wartime experience, but I think every citizen of Hiroshima grows up considering himself in a sense, an emissary of peace. And I know that certainly is part of deep in in Maury's heart. Mm -hmm. Spencer.
2: Yes. um, Again, um, adding uh, just as Humble thanks to the work that you did. It's a real contribution to the world spirit and world awareness. You've done a fantastic job, and uh, I I was wondering when you mentioned uh, you know many of these people who are not uh, 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 part of trying to create that. Uh, you mentioned Edward Reichauer. Yeah. And, and uh, the, I happen to have uh, done a, a bit with him and, uh, and his uh, in a film that uh, was done in Japan and, uh, and his uh, wife Haru. Uh, and uh, I thought that I'd like to hear if your comments on him uh, because he was, again, such an incredible ambassador for world peace and understanding even during the war and so forth. But you, you mentioned him and I just I just lit up because well, what an incredible
6: guy. I'm glad I'm glad you put it that way. I, I light up every time I think about, about <laughs> Peter, Ed Reichauer. He was an incredible role model for, for me. I'll never come close of course but um, um he He was very involved with the war in the War Department. Mm. Um, There's no denying that. Um, He was very opposed in every way he could be to the Japanese militarist uh, uprising. His his elder brother actually was killed by a Japanese battalion in in Manchuria. Um, So he had great personal feelings personal feelings of affection for the Japan that he knew before the war and grew up in for the Japan that he was teaching at Harvard the glories of Japanese history and art and and culture but he also had deep personal uh, animosity for what Japan had become in in the 1930s um, <clears throat> and Reschauer when he was ambassador in some ways I mean his his effectiveness as ambassador was fantastic. He was a great ambassador uh, appointed by JFK, Um, but he was denounced by many Americans at the time as being much more an ambassador for Japan than he was for America. So that sort of contrast um, tension figured very much into him, his background. And then I think tragically, Tragically, at the end being ambassador in Japan during the Vietnam War, he had to represent American policies, Vietnam wartime policies that perhaps he didn't believe in personally, but he had to um, stand with them as a representative of America. And then when he came back to Harvard after his ambassadorship, He was very strongly criticized by many of the anti war groups around Cambridge and around you know around the world uh, for having represented American policy. Um, So it was a very uh, Reichauer had a very complex life and a very complex uh, career, but one that still I, I. hold him as one of the great idols of my life. Liz.
7: Hi, um, I wanted to thank you also. I saw the movie, I did my homework. I saw it earlier today, so it's quite <laughs> sure. Sure. quite fresh for me. Um, and I wanted to ask about a couple of things I or comment and also ask. Um, the ask is um, in the 1980s, I lived in Fresno, California for many years. And in the 1980s, I was involved in anti-nuclear activities there. And one of the things that the group that I was involved with wanted to do was wanted to reach out to the Japanese-American community in Fresno and talk with them and maybe have some kind of commemoration Mm -hmm. uh, in early August. Um, And in fact, we did a ceremony, there was some water nearby somewhere, and we... uh, set candles afloat and uh, did that kind of thing, which was quite wonderful. However, it was really hard in terms of getting anybody in that community to say a word about Hiroshima. Um, They did not want to talk about it at Mm. all. Mm. Um, And they talked, you know, when we were actually able to talk a little bit, uh, all of the feelings that they had had, as uh being in the united states at that time as japanese americans um they just they just you know talk about wanting to put it behind them i mean it was like this is a wall and we did make some uh ability to connect uh, but i was i was shocked i i i was completely ignorant i just i didn't know you know it didn't occur to me i was very ignorant so that's one point and i'd kind of be interested if you. Shown it to Japanese American audiences in the United States, what kinds of responses you've gotten. Um, the other is, uh, and again, I speak kind of out of my professional background, I'm a clinical psychologist. It's all about relationship. You know, the question about why, why did Mr. Morey do this? And he talks about his cousin, and he talks about his aunt, and he talks about the school that if he hadn't left, he would have been one of the victims you know, there's that personal relationship. And then when you're talking about Barry Feuchette being distantly related to uh, Mr. Chandonet, uh, you know, it's, we've got to to be very respectful of relationships here. So again, back to the question I'm wondering about Japanese American audiences.
6: Well, first to the second part of your comment, The, the question of personal relationships, I think underlies every aspect of human creativity and human compassion human passion. So you're, you're absolutely right on that without without human relationships, who would, who would we be. Mm -hmm. uh, After all, and I think that was part of uh, Obama's thinking also Mm -hmm. going to Hiroshima 70 some years later, Uh, Mm -hmm. we have a completely different kind of relationship now, political, uh, economic. Uh, with Japan than we did in the thirties and the forties. And it's time for us to face up to the fact that it's a different world now. Um, The question about Japanese Americans is is really, really uh, interesting. Um, Until very recently, I think, and I'm speaking only within the last 10 years as the Japanese American community in general um been willing or even eager uh, to talk about their past their past in Japan as well as their past in America they didn't want to talk about the the concentration camps mm-hmm. um, for for decades after it it was a, a kind of shame or embarrassment or whatever their reasons they didn't want to talk about it mm-hmm. um, Similarly many American, um, soldiers, veterans came back from World War II, and for six or seven decades, never spoke to their kids about their experiences. I mean, war is, a, is such a terrible thing that you can sympathize, I think, with people who've experienced it, being unwilling to think about it or, or reflect on it. or um, After all, we're not we're not professional historians, we're not all writing books about, about history. So putting painful things behind us is a pretty powerful
1: force. Uh, George Allen, you had something? Yeah, uh, I'm really, really disturbed. Uh, it, I, I think that all of this is wonderful. And it's a story of redemption. And getting back together and it's a kind of Phoenix-like quality about Hiroshima being a a vibrant city today and about people having found a way to have relationships. Uh, I represented the people of Bikini Atoll. Uh, I spent a fair part of my life dealing with the after effects of nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands. Uh, I have a I'm still doing work related to Guam and military impacts Uh, seen in perspective. uh, Somebody mentioned LeMay's 20th Air Force. Uh, It did more damage uh, by incendiary bombing uh, cities in Japan than it was done by Hiroshima and Nagasaki in terms of lives lost or even physical destruction. Uh, What I think is not. Grasped is the difference in magnitude, which is so great as to be a difference in essence between the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs uh, and thermonuclear weapons. The Castle Bravo shot at Bikini on March 1, 1954, the Mike shot at Enowitak. the Rush, those were 15 to 17 kiloton. Uh, uh, megaton. I'm sorry. Megaton. Uh, devices. The Russians exploded one of 80 megatons in Siberia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is not going to be any human survival of a war involving thermonuclear weapons. So what, what are euphemistic or what are uh, called hydrogen bombs are not really hydrogen bombs. They. Uh, Bravo shot at Bikini was a thousand times greater than the Hiroshima bomb, uh, 15 kilotons versus 15 megatons. Bikini Atoll is not habitable. It's never going to be habitable. Uh, Muroroa, where the French tested, is never going to be habitable. Uh, and if anybody thinks, that we do not have the capacity to destroy human life on this planet. So there aren't going to be any movies made afterward by people that represents a level of naivete and innocence uh, and literally whistling past the graveyard that greatly disturbs me and I, I regret that I don't I can know about it, but I have no ability, and I don't think anybody has any ability to communicate it, that uh, there will be no survival of a thermonuclear war. No matter who starts it, no matter how it gets going, humanity will not survive it. Mm -hmm. And I, I just... Uh, All of the dialogue that we've had this morning is a dialogue about things that involve an assumption that life will go on, about relationships, about uh, Mm -hmm. people making movies, about uh, things that are simply never, ever going to exist uh, if we don't find a way to get this damn thing under control and we're talking about something that 77 years ago, and ours is the last generation that will have even been alive when this event happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, after us, and uh, shoot, this, this stuff is as far back in my kids' lives as the Spanish-American War was in my life uh, or in my grandchildren's lives uh we're forgetting a hell of a lot faster than anybody is having any cognizance uh Mm -hmm. and i just found all of this profoundly disturbing uh and what disturbs me more than anything is this is fabulously good stuff that is profoundly disturbing uh this is an incredible work this is in it, it, an incredible story of how great human beings can be, but it, it i don't I, I don't know that any of us even has a vocabulary or a way of thinking about the magnitude of the risks that we've got, and now the Russians have pulled it out of the start agreement that, that's happened this week mm-hmm. uh, so uh, you know I don't want to rain on a parade. This is terrific stuff. Uh, but it's also very profoundly disturbing to me that there is a human inability to grasp that the weapons that are enormous in arsenals, thousands of them, uh, uh, seventeen hundred on our side, more than that on the Soviet, on the Russian side have the capacity to literally destroy life on Earth. Uh, And I don't know how you get that communicated. Uh, Certainly takes better skills than I have.
0: Right. Well, thank you. I think we all agree with with what you're saying, George. Uh, So listen, we've been going for about an hour and a half this time. And Peter, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great.
6: Thank 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 you all. I'm very moved by the message of the last speaker. I mean yeah, that really yeah. is the truth beneath all of this. The question for all of us is how you know, do we get rid of those stockpiles? What who's gonna take the first step? How do you, all those big political questions? Yeah. You know?
7: well, yeah, I, but, just, I just want to,
1: in, in, the, in the cold, at the height of the Cold War, the US and the Soviet Union each had more than 20,000 nuclear weapons, 25,000 or so. Those included what were we'll called tactical nuclear weapons, about the yield of the Hiroshima bomb, or the tactical nuclear weapons, and then the intercon- intercontinental strategic weapons. And we have reduced them. I mean, there was the START treaty, which reduced them significantly but now the Russians having backed out is a very, very serious concern.
0: That was a presentation by Peter Grilly, our classmate and member of our podcast group. His movie is titled Paper Lanterns. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.